you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now in Fast Countdown to Walmart's earnings, the retail giant up more than 8% since the start of Q4. How will the markets react to its take on inflation, the consumer, and the overall economy? Plus, new mojo for Meta following a, a post-earnings pounding, the stock rebounding nearly 20% in the last week. Is this a take-the-money-and-run moment or the beginning of a new revival later? Breaking down President Biden's one-on-one with China's President Xi, a crowning achievement for Netflix, where options traders think the stock is headed next and the latest on the collapse of FTX and its former CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market side in the heart of Times Square on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. And we start off with the countdown to big retail earnings. Walmart kicking things off tomorrow morning with investors keyed in on what the company has to say about inflation, inventory, and, of course, its outlook. The results could have a big impact on the broader markets. When Walmart warned about Q2 results in late July, the stock fell more than 7% the next day. The S&P dropped more than a percent. After missing expectations for the first quarter, Walmart fell three days in a row, losing 20% in that period. The S&P 500 was down nearly three. Markets heading into the report on a down note. A late-day sell-off sent all three major indices into the red, with the Dow dropping more than 210 points. The Nasdaq falling more than a percent. Walmart and Home Depot were the worst performers on the Dow today. So what should we expect from tomorrow's results, and what will the broader market implications be? Karen, what do you say? Yeah, so I think that Walmart won't be that bad. Hmm. I think they're actually, they've sort of learned to be in the managing expectations business, I think. They had this disastrous quarter. Remember, we had Bill Simon on talking about apocalyptic inventory, only to see targets actually a third higher than (laughs) apocalypse plus 33%. And then Walmart actually ended up doing a little better than they had sort of guided lower, down 11 to 13%, and it came in down... 9 to 11, earnings were a little better. I'm not quite sure. We saw that big shift. Gasoline was really important to them, and groceries. Gasoline's come in somewhat, so that top line may be down a little. But um, I think they're sort of managing expectations in a decent way. I think it'll be okay, but it is more expensive than Target, which announces the next day. I have more Target than I do Walmart. We learn a lot about the consumer and consumer behaviors. The notion that we, we learned last quarter that they are seeing a wealthier individual, wealthier household shopping there, that there's trade downs trade down. happening, yeah. you know, all these sort of nuances as we are sort of coming to grips with the Fed's uh, rate hikes here. Well, we, we were seeing and we were hearing from them a couple of things. General merchandise was also under pressure mm-hmm. and, and that was hurting Target more than Walmart because also they have higher margin there and Target, frankly, is Target. So he got to a place where uh, we, we heard different things. And in fact, I would make an argument that what we heard from them on Q1 earnings in May and what they said again in July, it was more about margins. We weren't hearing about a consumer that was necessarily under the same kind of pressure that I think we're listening for that now. And, and I, I, I expect that while um, I think the consumer runs into headwinds as we get into next year. What they want to talk about may be something very different. I, I think right now, going into the holiday seasons, I think we've gotten some, some updates, and Guy probably wants to 
hear the countdown of how many days till Christmas at this point. So I'll let you do that. But but we have a case where I think you're, you're expecting holiday sales 6.8 percent. It's supposed to be a great Christmas. You're not going to see this deterioration until then. So right now it's going to be about, first of all, clean inventory for the third quarter. Uh, I think they're going to give you that. I think they're going to be better than Target. But I think it's really more about what they say about the health of the consumer before it was what they're saying about the health of their own business. Right. I got to tell you, the last hour of the day today felt like somebody knows something about something. Okay, and and if there, I'm just saying, like to see that sort of reversal, you know, the market felt a little squishy this morning after we had these massive two days, right, Thursday and Friday, and I think the continuation of Friday was really important. And you would have said to yourself, okay, the fact that we were like up or down 25 basis points, that you know, did, it, it, yeah. it, that felt great. Okay, and then to have the market kind of gain steam and then lose it all at the end of the day, I, I don't know how that happens if people don't think something's like coming out tomorrow. So again, like you say that Walmart is going to be fine, you know, like inventory is going to be this, the holiday season should be this. I mean, I don't know. I mean, like if you think about it, so like to me, I think this is going to be a really important week. You think about Home Depot, you think about Walmart, some of the other retail earnings we're going to get. And if you look at that consumer confidence number that we just saw, and David Rosenberg tweeted this out this morning. Okay. We had a sub 55. He said on average, okay, during recessions, the consumer confidence, University of Michigan is about 71 during expansions. It's about 88. It was 55. Okay, we don't even have a recession right now. So again, I think this could be actually the most important week of this cycle that we are in right now, as people are trying to figure out whether that was a V bottom or it was just a bear market so, rally. Rosie's does great work; has yeah. done it for a long time. But isn't that 55? Why the market rallied five percent on Thursday? Because the sentiment I mean, was so yeah, bad. I, I no, mean, I get it. You know, but, I, I think I think that's the story. <laughs> I, I and I I guess I look at what happened today as we went into the close as a function of I don't think there's much Walmart can tell us that we don't already know. I think, again, we, we were so worried about margins because it was so much of a supply chain overshoot. We went from you couldn't get anything to now, hold on, it's not just Walmart, it's every other retailer in the world. They're the most sophisticated retailer, and I, I, I think that's the tell, but we'll see. Guy, do you agree with Tim that, that Walmart won't tell us anything we don't know already? You know, it's it's a couple last couple quarters. They've told us a lot we didn't know. So maybe they, to Karen's point, they figured out how to sort of manage and, and guide and and lower expectations and speak to Wall Street. In terms of Walmart, what I'll say is this: at 21 times, it's expensive to the broader market, cheap to itself historically. But if you look at the levels, I mean, remember this was a stock that was making an all-time high in April, traded north of 160. Obviously, plummeted down to 117. This 138 level that we're trading at now is to the penny a 50% retracement of that entire move. So really the question is, are they going to be able to maintain margins in this environment? And to Dan's point, you know, I don't know if somebody caught a whiff of PPI tomorrow. I have no idea. But the last hour or so felt like somebody did know something. I don't know if it's in the form of Walmart or PPI or some amalgamation. But, you know, Walmart's got to prove himself having bounced from that 117 level uh, pretty significantly over the last month or so. Yeah, I mean, we need to hear a, a work down in terms of the inventory, that apocalyptic inventory that hangs over it. But it did benefit from a strong back to school season. Theoretically, holidays should be decent. Um, does Walmart give a forward year guidance? Because that that's where they could be in the business of managing expectations to the point of lowering expectations. Forward year guidance? I actually don't recall if they give. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I do. You know what I think of giving forward guidance? It's a terrible idea. It's a terrible mm -hmm. idea because, I mean, there, things are really mucked up right now and it's hard to see anything clearly. So for why would you box yourself into forward guidance when you can't possibly know? But um, I do think, right, they had those giant write downs, as you said, that inventory number yeah. was enormous. 
I think, you know, they kind of, I hope they kitchen synced it. And actually, they did come out with better earnings one time in between the kitchen sink. But I think also, though, Home Depot is really important to get a sense of this housing market. Right. How damaged is the housing market? And is there still the remodel market? Is that consumer still there? Mm-hmm. Is, are, you know, are, is inflation still problematic? And I'll bet they're also pushing back on their Walmart and Home Depot, both probably pushing back on their suppliers on price. Right. Well, uh, yeah, and, and no one can push harder than Walmart can. They're, they're, they have the most leverage, I think, of anybody out there. But you're right on Home Depot. And, and uh, their pro business is now 50% of sales, and that's been part of why it's done so well even during a difficult time. And so the, the view is um, they can probably get through some of this period. But at some point, and I, I've said Home Depot, even in a world where the velocity of housing sales go to almost nothing, um, it will do very well because people are staying in their homes and they still have equity in them and they're, they're ready to spend, they're making money. But at some point, you're going to see a drain on savings. You're going to see a drain on, on wages are going to start to pull back a little bit. And housing markets aren't getting better anytime soon. So um, Home Depot will be minus 2 or 3% uh, same-store sales next year. They're going to contract. And I think that's actually already out there in the market, whereas I don't think Walmart will. In fact, Walmart's probably going to probably be up three or four. I mean, in terms of trades, we're already seeing people draw down on their savings. I mean, the savings yes. rate has dropped to levels that we haven't seen since the recession. So we're seeing that impact yeah. in terms of inflation, ha- people having to deal with that. Well, yeah, I'll just say this. So you asked about full-year guidance. So the fiscal year, they guided in August when they reported. And so they're in their fiscal Q3 right now. And they guided to, you know, four and a half percent, you know, revenue growth and EPS. Um, down. And so when you think about that, down down about uh, 9% or so, next year expect to be up 12% on um, EPS. If you think about all of these pressures that we're talking about as it relates to margins, you know, wages are not going lower. We can all agree with that with like a Walmart sort yeah. of uh, employee. Not so, yet. Yeah, not yet. And, and so again, if you're talking about a consumer, if you start to see weakening demand as we go into 2023, where the recession is supposed to happen, you know, that EPS number for the following year for fiscal 2024, that we're almost there, it probably seems a bit high, right? So to the me... The labor, I, not labor, I'm yeah. sorry, supply chain costs will go down. They yeah. have been problematic in the last year. So that's one. Yeah, but I'm Maybe just saying, so enough. if you have, you have, um, you're playing, paying your hundreds of thousands of employees higher, right? And then demand is weaker from a similar sort. That's not a great setup. So to me, I think you're probably out your estimates for earnings are probably still too high. And Guy just said at 21 times, that's just well above a market multiple. It's probably still too high. Who, for Walmart? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Walmart's not cheap. And, yeah. and it's funny because relative to Target, and this has been a great trade, doing the Walmart versus Target trade over the last three years, it's been a lot lopsided victory for one side or the other over the last couple of years. And Walmart has been outperforming aggressively. Walmart now probably trades one, you know, three or four turns premium to the market, whereas Target is probably three or four turns below the market and really makes it look more interesting. As much as I love Walmart and I am long Walmart and I have a little bit of Target, much smaller position, uh, I, I think Target looks here's more a, interesting. Here's a question, Guy. Oh, let's play Would You Rather. Oh, it's uh, Monday. Let, let's oh, I love do this it. Game. So Walmart or, or, or Staples company like a Clorox. I mean, we're talking about valuation of the company. We're talking about also companies that you can argue do much better when the economy is in a downturn. When a consumer is strapped, you know, you want to go to something that they buy all the time or that they'll go to because they can save money. Yeah, I haven't looked at Clorox closely enough to answer that, so I'm not trying to uh, change it get for P&G, around change it your for Kimberly reindeer Clark, game. Change it for any of these. But... No, but I, I know I know where you're going with this. I would rather Walmart, given that game. I mean, P- Procter & Gamble is still expensive, in my opinion, more expensive than Walmart. <laughs> and I think, listen, the downstream, 
Walmart will win to the environment that we find ourselves in. So in that game, yes, the problem is, you know, I think we've retraced 50% of that, again, that all-time high and that recent low that we saw. So the natural progression should be then to make a move to the downside, maybe another 8 or 9% before it gets interesting. All right. Our next guest notices an interesting trend in the markets right now. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verona, Strategus, a Baird company. He was just ranked the number two technical analyst on Wall Street in 2022 in the Institutional Investors Research Survey. Chris, congratulations. Thank what you. are you taking a look at? Well, I think what's notable about this market is how different the action is at the surface level relative to what's playing out under the surface. So the index versus the average uh, stock. And you know, what we do here, we start with the S&P, just looking over the course of the last year. What do we know here? We know that every rally attempt has failed at a lower high, right? So let's call it 4080 is the 200-day on the S&P. About 4150 is where the downtrend comes into play. We're presently about 300 points below those August highs. Now, if we look at... Um, if we look at the triple Q chart here as well, again, as we know, very similar story. Every single rally, lower high, lower high, lower high. But what this doesn't show us is actually the improvement that we've seen under the surface. So the percentage of stocks that are actually trading above their 200-day moving average, 56% today, is higher than what we saw when the S&P was 300, index, was 300 index points higher in August, 51%. So under the surface, the average issue is demonstrating leadership versus the top of the market. This is very, very reminiscent to what we saw in the 2001-2002 bear market. There were points of that bear market where the index would fall, but you'd get something like 60, 70 percent of issues above the 200-day. It was the average issue outperforming the top of the tape. So when we take a look and look at the big weights today, isn't it notable, despite a 15 percent S&P rally, despite nearly 60% of issues above the 200-day, what's not above the 200-day? Not Microsoft, not Tesla, not Apple, not Amazon, not Google. The largest weights are still the technically weakest parts of this market. So if we take a step back and say, what does this mean longer term? I want to show you a very notable comparison. These were the five largest weights in the S&P in 1999. We're talking about Cisco, of course, IBM, Nokia, uh, etc. They peaked at about 20% of the index on 1231.99. Over the next seven years, their weight would fall to about 5% of the index. It took seven years to complete that top of the market losing leadership. Today, as we know, the five largest, Amazon, Apple, Tesla, Microsoft, Alphabet, peaked at about 25% of the S&P. We think ultimately this is headed down to 15 so if we're losing the largest weights, it's hard for the index to make a lot of progress. I think 4150 is probably the top end of the range. But the average issue is where you make money. This is very, very similar to that 2001-2002 bear market. Very important theme here. Chris, do they trade as a monolith, or are there certain stocks among those top five, the five biggest, that you think will fare the worst? I think they trade as a monolith. And kind of go one by one here. You know, it's always the best ones that go last. I mean. Apple is the one that really hasn't broken in a big way yet. I do think that'll be a story in 2023. I mean, it's still a weak name. But when you look at Tesla, even the last couple of days as the markets rallied sharply, what really hasn't moved? I mean, Tesla's still below the 200 level. The rally in Amazon looks very counter trend. Microsoft and Google 
are just back to where they were a couple weeks ago. So when I look at the big weights, I mean, remember, these were 25% of the index. That's too much. That will correct itself over a very long period of time. So don't lose the plot of the movie. We get these counter trend rallies, some quite big, but the plot of the movie is the large weights continue to surrender leadership. That's a process that will be measured in years, not in months or quarters. And, and Chris, and yeah. so th- those, those names you just pointed out were, were hardware companies, right? So, so where are we going? So what will be the sectors that can pick up some of that slack? Uh, yeah. I talk often that energy, which we know is 16% of the S&P at its peak in 2008. Wh- where do you think the average stock I- is, is going to be, though, that picks up that weighting? Well, Tim, I, I think what people forget is not only was energy 16% of the S&P in 08, how about in 1988 it was 30% of the S&P. So we went from 30% of the S&P in energy in 1980 to 2% in 2020. The long term means about 12. Can energy get to 12% of the S&P? I don't think that's unreasonable at all. What, what we've been writing and saying is you want to own stocks or sectors or groups that are doing something demonstrably different than the index itself. Let's start very simple. I want names and groups that are already above where they were in August. You get a lot of capital markets there. Look at Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. Um, you certainly get a lot of the industrials. I think Cummins has acted absolutely fantastic here. So I think the issue for a lot of investors are it's not the stocks or the groups that people own a lot of. Right. Everyone's still there's so much legacy positioning in the Apples and the Amazons, uh, et cetera. The things that are actually working here, and I think continue to work, leadership and ownership is still too small. Chris, thank you. Good thank to you. see you. Congratulations on II. Thank Chris you. Verone of Strategus. Um, Guy Nami, the last time it took seven years, says Chris. You know, you can argue that markets move a lot faster these days and the unwind could be much swifter. What do you think? That, yeah, I agree with that. I think things do move quicker. I think Chris would agree with that as well. I don't think it's going to take seven years, but his point is well made that we're losing the leadership and it takes time to get to some equilibrium. And I think we're in the early innings of that. So, you know, I think people are expecting Apple to have this huge bounce. Microsoft, all these stocks are not trading particularly well, and that's part of a pattern. But I would submit it's part of a healthy bottoming pattern that we need to go through. It just takes some time. Coming up, tech layoffs hit Amazon. The e-commerce giant announcing plans for sweeping job cuts, what the move will mean for the stock next, plus a bump for Biogen share jumping more than 3%, and it's all thanks to another company's bad day. We'll explain when Fast Money returns. Back in two. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your 
your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. We've got a news alert on David Tepper's Appaloosa management. Christina Partsinevelis is reading through the latest 13F filings. Christina, what's the latest? And what we're seeing, Appaloosa's selling out of several big names, Caesars, Netflix, and Disney, even bucking the trend with semiconductors, selling its entire stake in Micron. Appaloosa also cutting Kohl's from its books, selling over 1.8 million shares. While there is no change to its larger position in Macy's, they still hold about 6 million shares. Macy's earnings are out just uh, on Wednesday before the bell. The company, though, Appaloosa, did sell over 12% of its holdings of Meta. The stock right now, pretty much flat uh, to the upside. Unlike other 13Fs, though, there were no buying uh, opportunities in this uh, 13F filing for Q3. Uh, The quarter did end on September 30th, and keep in mind, it does not disclose short positions. Melissa? Christina, thanks. Christina Partsnevelis, and of course, David Tepper. He's a relatively quick trader, so who knows where he is right now on, on a lot of these positions, unless they're sizable sales or purchases. Karen, what do you make of this? Well, I know you were, she was saying that she mentioned Kohl's and you looked over at I me. I did. I looked over Is at you. Is that why you're coming yes. to me now? I mean, I think Kohl's was, the, you know, he does some risk arbitrage from time to time. And if he, like me and many others, was like, ah, I'm just thoroughly disgusted. I'm out. Um, and I, you know, not going to revisit it. If I wanted other retail exposure, I'd go somewhere else. Yeah. Netflix, I don't know. That's sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you think about, first of all, David Tepper has is, is also been very swift and nimble in terms of his call on the market. He's been right. I mean, he really has been. Um, when you think about semis, you know, arguably at the end of September, that, that was at least a bottom for now. In other words, semis in the middle of October went on a 30% tear. I'm not saying um, that he wasn't right to be fading at that point. And again, Micron is very different than an NVIDIA, which, by the way, has risen 52% from almost that date. So um, it, it's just a very interesting time when you think of some of the biggest hedge funds in the world, and he certainly runs one of them. There's some very big and crowded trades that also, you know, you have to keep your eye on as an investor. And some of these, that's just been the story of just very crowded trades. Yeah, interesting that he stuck by his um, holdings of Macy's, which is a sizable position, Guy. I don't know wh- wh- how you think about that. Maybe looking for an activist to jump in, you know, mm. can maybe rationalize it on valuation. I, I don't think about it. I'll tell you, though, you know, Netflix, just looking at the, the calendar and where the stock is traded from, looks like he did extraordinarily well in that. But the fact that he's blowing out a Micron, I think, is pretty interesting. A stock that went from 90 down to mid 50s, 60 bucks now, that clearly wasn't a winner, which is fine. I mean, we all have bad trades. But the fact that he's pulling the ripcord on Micron in this environment, to me, is a little interesting. All right, let's move on here. The big tech payroll trims keep on coming. Amazon reportedly cutting 10,000 employees in corporate and tech roles beginning this week. The cuts would be the largest in the company's history. Shares of Amazon down another two plus percent today. Does this signal an end to the pandemic produced boom for the e-tailer? Um, supposedly the cuts are going to focus on the devices category, things like Alexa, Echo, home stuff, the stuff that's a little bit more experimental, a little less profitable. 
Dan, what do you think? Well, I mean, listen, this is an easy place to cut here. And we've talked about the sum of the parts, you know, as it relates to Amazon, the way investors think of it. And really, the entire valuation is AWS. So it's the public cloud sort of business that's growing faster, has high margins, it's finance, all of the other stuff. Now, if you look at that sum of the parts, that retail business, which they clearly overexpanded on. Uh, Karen, you were mentioning it the other day and logistics, and they're selling off some of that stuff. And they hired tens of thousands of employees. I mean, all of this are probably little pieces here. They'll probably start with that. Let's see how investors react to that. I think investors um, kind of liked it when that news hit the headlines of uh, that possibly happening late last week. The stock rallied here. But again, I don't think this is enough of a cut where you could say they're one and done. I think they're yeah. going to continue to kind of do this in and around the edges. And again, Andy Jazzy, who took over a little less than a year and a half ago, he's going to chart his own path forward for this company. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not one and done. I mean, it yeah. took them years, years to build up this infrastructure at a time when they and everybody like them were just growing, growing. It didn't matter what the hell spend the money and money was free. free yeah, right. So but these sound like higher uh, higher income jobs. They do. They're right? yeah. warehouse. They need the warehouse workers. They need the warehouse workers. Yeah. Right. Um, so these sound so that's you know, I think we're going to see even more of it. We've seen a lot already starting around, you know, Amazon here today and what we've seen Alphabet and Microsoft and obviously Meta last week. And I think we'll continue to see more. I wonder if it's just going to be a big white collar recession. Yeah. Hence the trade, more trade downs at a place like a Walmart, right? When they're seeing higher income consumers. Yeah. And, and look, as much as the numbers around Azure weren't terrible, um, where are we in terms of cloud and in terms of enterprise? Spend? There's no question. It's all in the cloud. It's all ball bearings these days. I mean, whatever you want to say. But it, it, the bottom line here is that this is part of the pressure that I'm not even sure we've really seen on Amazon, right? I mean, we haven't really heard about uh, a headwind in enterprise. We kind of hinted around it, but, you know, Microsoft, especially around some of their office and some of that suite, they really have room. Um, so I, I just think that there's a there's a place here where you 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 some of the big folks haven't really worn where they should. And, and that concerns me when you bring it back to Amazon. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A biotech bump. Biogen shares in rally mode after arrival stumbles. So will this stock keep climbing? The details next. Plus, the China factor. What the meeting between the U.S. and Chinese leaders means for overseas investing. The traders break it down ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on markets today. Stocks taking a breather from last week's big rally. The Dow dropping more than 200 points. The S&P dropping nearly a percent. And the tech-heavy Nasdaq leading the losses down more than a percent. Shares of Hasbro dropping more than 2% after a bearish note from Bank of America. The stock's worst day since March of 2020. Turning now to the big meeting that took place in Bali this morning, President Biden and Chinese President Xi met for three hours and discussed everything from nuclear weapons to Ukraine, in Ukraine to Taiwan's independence, the two downplaying tensions and pledging more communication between the two countries. 
For the real takeaways, let's bring in CNBC contributor Dewardrick McNeil. He is also the senior policy analyst and managing director at Longview Global. Dewardrick, always good to see you. Um, you know, three hours isn't a long time for them to really iron out differences. <laughs> uh, what, do you, what did you make of this meeting? I mean, it seems like a step in the right direction, at least. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Look, I think you're absolutely right. This, this meeting was absolutely a step in the right direction. This was about guardrails around competition and really setting up what many people will consider to be the terms of coexistence, Melissa. And I think this meeting went a long ways in doing that. A lot of people have been calling for, um, and I've said the same thing, a multi-level ongoing dialogue mechanism to help manage through this challenge that we are facing in the U.S.-China relationship. And I think this meeting went a long ways in doing that. Uh, Biden talked about Secretary Blinken traveling on to China after this to continue those discussions. He talked about cabinet-level officials meeting with their Chinese counterparts to talk about some of these issues. And so, and look, Mr. So there hasn't been a cabinet-level visit to China in over three years. So this is an important step. I, I agree with that. But I want to be cautious here that in order for these dialogues to really work and help manage through the challenges, they have to remain open and viable. And China is notorious for turning these dialogues off and on uh, to show their displeasure uh, with the U.S. for one thing or the other. After Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan, China turned off eight dialogues to include mill-to-mill, uh, counter-narcotics cooperation, and climate change. And look, that just can't happen if we're going to manage through these challenges. These dialogues have to stay open, specifically during times where there are concerns and crises. But do you think that this meeting marked any sort of a change in the direction of our relationship, a course correction, the beginning of one at least? Um, or is it way, way, way too early? Uh, I'm, I'm, you seem like an optimistic guy. I'm by nature not really. So I'm very skeptical. <laughs> well, I think you're right to be skeptical in terms of what people are calling a course correction. This was not that. Look, the long-term strategic trajectory is set. It's competition. But the question is, how do you do that? And do you do that in a way that doesn't lead to conflict? That's what this was about. But for those who think we're going to return to the days of you know, 2005, and, and that's not going to happen. The U.S. and China has made it clear that competition is the way forward. Both sides have competing visions about how the world should be ordered. And that's not going to change with today's meeting. That won't change even with the dialogue mechanisms that we're discussing. But it's how you compete uh, that matters. It's trying to find ways uh, to cooperate where you can. And again, trying to find ways to coexist. That's where we are uh, with today's meeting and I think over the, over the long term. Dwardrick, it's Tim. Yeah, and in fact, I think that's how some of our greatest diplomatic relationships have gone in other parts of the world, too. And not communicating is the worst thing we can do, and I think we're doing this around the world. Uh, but my question is, and I hear from the Biden administration's comments that we've reiterated over and over our stance on particular issues, so no one will be surprised uh, when, in fact, or disappointed by our view sometime later. Now, I don't know if the, the Biden administration wants to get to Taiwan, but we're hearing other members of Congress say, hey, you know, McCarthy's talking about heading over there. You, there's a lot of people that for some reason want to whack this hornet's nest. And, and I'm just wondering what that's going to do. Well, Tim, you're right to raise uh, some particular uh, concerns about a Republican-controlled Congress who have a lot of additional things that they'd like to see done. But look, I have to give uh, 
President Biden some kudos. He was as clear on Taiwan as I've ever seen him uh, today. He stated clearly that he is opposed to a unilateral change in the status quo, that U.S. policy around Taiwan has not changed. And he didn't deviate, uh, Tim, as we've heard in the past. So I think that's refreshing for uh, individuals uh, who would like to see this toned down a bit. But uh, to your point, I, I don't think uh, the Biden administration can control what's going to come uh, from Congress, but at least the administration was clear how they're looking at this particular issue. DeWardrick, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Melissa. DeWardrick McNeil of Longview. Um, Guy, geopolitical has been top, uh, you know, on your list of, of wild cards for, for this year. Does this meeting make you feel any better? No imminent attempt by China to invade Taiwan. That word imminent seems seems to jump out at me. Yeah. Imminent's a scary word. I'm, you know I'm in your camp. You know, I'm, I'm one to sort of, you know, I'm always a half-empty person without question. But this was a good step. And I'll just throw this in there. You know, the fact that Buffett comes out and is, you know, with that stake in Taiwan semi, mm -hmm. I mean, he clearly wouldn't understands what's happening in the landscape. So I guess in a certain way, that's his way of dismissing or saying, you know what, maybe there's only a 10 or 15 percent of something happening there. You know, I still think things are going to escalate at some point. This obviously is a good first step. But, you know, the Chinese are going to do what's best for the Chinese. That's always been their game plan. Yeah, I'll just say this. You know, I tend to also be a skeptic about some of this sort of stuff. I really see a place in 2023 where maybe the things in Ukraine really calm down a bit. Mm -hmm. It seems like they've done things that none of us expected when Russia invaded them earlier this year. And it seems like that could, and, and diplomatically too. I mean, there's some movement with the Biden administration and some people over there. And then if the China thing is off the table for 2023 with Taiwan or something, we could have a much more, like a, just a calmer geopolitical situation, which I think would be great for the global economy that has no shortage of headwinds really still reeling, I guess, after the pandemic. It has been like a couple of weeks, three weeks. We were talking about companies that operate uh, in China and how they should be concerned. Maybe there should be some sort of a discount embedded in the likes of an Apple or Starbucks or any of these. Is that off the table now? Is that is that gone? Do you think? Which do you think is gone? Is the growth gone? No, or no, no, skepticism. no. The skepticism. Oh, not yeah. for me. It's not yeah. gone. No. Ironically, though, for all the things you're talking about, which could happen. It's inflationary. I was gonna, okay, right, yeah. that's the point. So when I think of the, the whole China thing, sorry, because that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, China, everything about the China relationship, bottom line back here, it's inflationary. It's onshoring. It's nearshoring. It's China was exporting deflation for 40 years. It's a lot of different things. Globalization is dead. Um, China is a major consumer of energy. They're not They're going to get it wherever they can. They're going to compete with it. So all of this means that the inflationary pressures that we think are going to go away overnight are not. Coming up, two tales of meta. One of our traders is signing off, the other one giving this a like. Their takes on the stock next. Plus, Netflix shares streaming higher today. What the move is stirring up in the options pits. We got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Meta rising on reports the company is canceling several hardware projects to further cut costs after announcing mass layoffs last week. The stock now up 30 percent from lows in early, uh, earlier this month. The run is two of our traders playing this name in opposite ways. So, Dan, you sold. 
Well, Karen and I, bought, I think we bought some the same day, the yeah. day it gap lower. And, and again, yeah. I, I was trying to be patient here. I thought there was a probably a good chance for the gap. I did not want to be long into it. So I bought it. You know, you have a 20% rally, you know, from the point in which I bought it in such a short period of time. I thought it would fill in that gap. I don't need to be there for the whole thing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So I'm out. I took the trade. And again, I, you know, I think I said at the time, I don't really love the company. I don't like their products, their services, their CEO and his vision of the future. I just thought it was an unusually good trading opportunity. But you do. Well, like the I, vision, the CEO, the everything. Evaluation, valuation, valuation. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, I said that for a long time. So what's that <laughs> worth? But, yeah, we did buy it at almost the same time. I absolutely agree with Dan. And, he, you know, he's very clear. I'm in it for a trade. This is yeah. way overdone. I think it could bounce meaningfully, all of which happened. Good for you. Nice trade. Uh, I sort of think it's still way overdone. It was more and more overdone. But still, I think that uh, and I actually think the, the disdain peaked. We'll see. Yeah. There's always more disdain out there, it seems. But I feel like, you know, the, the bad sentiment peaked. Guy is full of it when it comes to matter. <laughs> Guy's full of what? The disdain, oh, disdain. that disdain. is. Oh. <laughs> is that a bad thing? I mean, I'm not alone. <laughs> it is what it I'm, is. It's probably early. A lot of people jumped on that. But look, Dan traded it. Karen's an investor in it. And I think they're both doing it exactly the right way. And, you know, we've said, you know, the 10, 15, maybe 10% chance that something happens with TikTok here in this country. I mean, you're talking about a stock that's going to go up 15% probably in a day. So there's still some upside here. Facebook's problems are not fixed by any stretch, but the, the hubris seems to be um, going away slowly, which is a good thing for the stock. All right, let's stick with big tech. Options traders, they're feeling pretty bullish about Netflix as the stock jumped 3% today. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Yeah, Netflix, always one of the busier single stock options, more than doubled its average daily call volume today, uh, over 380,000 call contracts in total traded. And the busiest of those are the November 310 calls. Those expire at the end of this week. Uh, We saw a good number of those, over 36,000 trade for an average of $4.65 a contract. And buyers of those calls are betting that the action that we saw today could continue. That would be an increase of just under 5% by week's end. Sam, how are you feeling about Netflix? Well, uh, you know, it's had a very big run off of that bounce. You're getting some dynamics. You're seeing Disney raise price on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. You're seeing some pricing power. You're seeing them uh, start to articulate what their ad model means. I- I'm long the stock. I'm long the stock from around here. So it hasn't been, you know, for me, it's just about getting back above water. And I think it goes higher. And-, and I think ultimately we have not priced in where the subs should be. And, and I think that the ad business is something that was long overdue. Yeah, and, and again, I would just say, I'd look at Disney here, and, and again, I bought it the day after its earnings. I thought it was a little overdone. I didn't really want to be long into the print. I just think that this cycle has been playing out. It might not be like this in the next cycle, but to me, Disney looks like the sentiment was bad into the print, the stock gap down, it filled in the gap here, but if Netflix is going to keep powering forward, I think there's a good chance that Disney does too. All right, Mike, thanks. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. After the break, the latest on the FTX collapse, the implications it has for the entire crypto space. The details, we come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. A mixed day for crypto as the group processes the fallout from the FTX bankruptcy. The question now is, how big will the ripple effects be on the rest of the industry and the broader investment world from the collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried's company? Kate Rooney joins us now with the latest developments. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, the latest this afternoon, another crypto hedge fund caught in the FTX crossfire. Ikigai Fund saying it had a large majority of the fund's total assets 
On FTX, the firm's partner, Travis Kling, tweeting that by the time they went to withdraw on Monday morning, they got very little out and are now stuck alongside everyone else, as he put it. He adds that it's hard for him to imagine the space bouncing back quickly from this ordeal and says too many people got burned too hard. Sources also tell me that a handful of other funds are in the same position right now, and it might not just be crypto funds, guys. There are likely more traditional crossover funds that dipped their toes into crypto recently. Sam Beckman-Fried told us in an interview back in August that these high-profile sort of power traders, as he described them, were FTX's core clients. Take a listen. Most of our volume comes from customers trading at least $100,000 per day of volume. And so these are high-volume, highly-engaged users. And it's sort of everything from, like, someone in the crypto ecosystem to a small quant trading firm, a family office, to day traders, to larger quant trading firms, to institutions. It spans a lot of different sort of demographics and countries and types of players, um, but they're all generally fairly sophisticated, fairly engaged, and fairly large volume. We're also now seeing the fallout in Washington. Sam Bankman-Fried donated about $40 million in the last campaign cycle. Congress members who received contributions are starting to make plans to donate those funds. Senators Durbin and Hoven are among the names on the Senate side saying they're going to do that. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Why not give those funds back to the people that lost them? There's an idea. Well, I'm just, I'm just thinking, like, if they want to yeah. do something good, how about all these people, most of them were innocent investors that lost their money. Right. How about channeling it back through? Right. It's amazing you're talking about, you know, high volume, sophisticated investors right. that use the platform. And now they're all stuck with no money. I mean, they're, they're holding the bag, basically. They're bag holders yes. in all of this. They right. weren't sophisticated enough to do the due diligence. It's really interesting. I'll, I'll tell you this. If you were, like, uh, looking for an institutional platform to use, like, forget retail because they were mm-hmm. just trading them everywhere. Like, think about Think about Robinhood over the last two years. It became a crypto thing. If you're an institution and you had every reason to believe after doing your due diligence to trade with that institution, that's one thing. If you are an investor, like, in, in, in this platform is that as an entity, you know what I mean, that's where the due diligence, I think fell down and talking to a handful of VCs who actually were pitched on this company over the last couple of months, a lot of them were just saying, didn't pass the smell test. That's why they didn't raise the capital. But no one came out and said anything and people were still letting him be on the cover of magazines and everything like that. This is the SBF guy. Right. So it's kind of really interesting. I mean, the due diligence on that side seemed to be okay, at least at this stage of the game. But I guess there were enough um, things out there over the last few months that we've seen enough blow ups where people had reason to be skeptical. Look, Think of all the people that, that paid to have FTX or got paid to have FTX all over them, including major league umpires who are supposed to be Stadiums. able to arbitrate between good and I mean, they're not. But I mean, not this, but in real life, it's just it's it's shocking to think about how um, this was a company that was elevated to be the blue chip uh, in a new stratosphere of investment. Yeah, um, we got another news alert here from Keith Meisters Corvex. Christina Parksonevelis is back with details. Christina. Yeah, I'm going to start with five major moves for the company. Uh, Corvax did increase its stake in Amazon up about 12%, but when it came to Alphabet, they actually uh, decreased their stake by 29%, so selling 29% in Q3 ending September 30th. Keep that in mind. The company also uh, getting out to about 27% lower in Constellation Energy, so they're lowering their stake there, selling about 483,000 shares. And then a big one for them, CSX Energy as well. They increased their stake by 60%, buying 
uh, 693,000 new, uh, 693, uh, new shares in CSX Energy. And then one last one, since we talk about software often enough, 5.9. They sold their stake. That's over half a million shares gone for uh, Corbex. All right, Christina, thank you. Christina Bartonevelis, uh, Final Trades up next. Final trade time, Guy. Little technical setup in Thor Industries, THO, Melms. Tim. Not a cheap stock, but Walmart is defensive here, should trade at a premium. I think you're going to get same store sales north of 4%. Karen. Yeah, I agree with most of what he said. Not a cheap <laughs> stock, should trade at a premium, might get okay sales. I'm going to go with Lowe's, though. <laughs> Similar story. All right. Dan. Oh, I got one. Uh, UUP, <laughs> I had a bearish bet on the dollar. Nice I was job. doing it nice through job, that. Man. I took that off there, so that was a nice break. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.